announcement. Exodus chapter 13. Remember, we, we started Exodus reminding ourselves over and over again of how the New Testament spoke about <clears throat> this event of Exodus. The Apostle Paul said these things were written down and recorded for our benefit upon whom the ends of the age have come. So when we read these insights, there are, we're going to unlock some insights into the life that God's called us to live by looking back to 1450 B.C., when God was performing this Exodus event. And through that event, God was revealing himself. And through that event, God was revealing things about us. And so even though, you know, we're not driving around in chariots, walking around in dusty roads in Egypt, uh, this, this event transfers into our lives. It finds itself in our lives. And one of the things I want to highlight today is... <clears throat> This event's going to take us out onto what I'll call the open road of life today, right? Remember our story, we're, we're tracking with God's people up through Exodus chapter 12 and into chapter 13. They have lived in the confines of Egypt. The affliction, the difficulty, the stresses of life of 430 years, lived in one space familiar to them is now about to drastically change. God is about to bring some significant change in their lives. And so this might be a new section in the book, if you will. And, and, and we do well to pay attention to sometimes our own life gets into a new section. Right? God's doing something that's a whole new section of your life. This would be a, a section I would call transition. Right? They're about to transition. What's been familiar to them, and you know, there, there's something comforting about familiar isn't there? Even if it's miserable, familiar. Even if you don't like it, it's familiar. I, I know what to expect. And I've taken some comfort in that. Even though this is bad, I know it's probably not going to be worse, even though it's bad. Well, that's Egypt for them. And God's about to say, okay, let's go out onto the open road now. We're going to leave Egypt and all that it provides for you and all the sense of benefit that you think you've received, and you're going to travel out onto the open road into places that you have no idea exactly what to expect. It feels different, unfamiliar scenery, needs that you don't know how the needs get met here. You're on the road, right? And at some point, your life goes on the road. And, you know, I can remember growing up, you know, it's like when you, you become a dad, eventually when you were a kid, vacations were totally different animals to you. Vacations were actually were fun and vacations. And then when you become a dad, it's, like, it's just like a different chapter of work. You know? and it costs you a lot of money and time and sweat and attention and this weird sense of responsibility that I, I, you know, I, I was aware my dad had this because I could tell when he was driving he had it. Right? Your dad's behind the wheel. Right, and this is the you know, late 60s and 70s for me. So dad's behind the wheel, and there's this, this sense of discomfort because sometimes the car would make a noise that it wasn't supposed to be making. And you're in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, and, and you, the, the situation heightens because your dad just kind of hushes everybody in the car. You know, like, shh, shh, wait, 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 what, shh, what was that? You know, you heard this boom, boom, boom underneath the car. And you had this sense of panic that, oh my gosh, if the car breaks down here, we're, we're just going to die in the wilderness here, right? Uh, and, and, and we did. We had cars break down. And, and if you've ever had a car break down 
when you are hundreds of miles away from anything familiar to you. You know, you don't know, you know, you can't call Joe the mechanic who always works on your car. Yeah, Joe, it's making that weird noise again. You're in the middle of nowhere. You don't know who to call. One, back then, you didn't have cell phones, so it wasn't like you could call anybody. It's like you just figured out, did we see a payphone booth in that little town we drove through 75 miles back there? It feels panicky the whole time. And as soon as we had one car break down, every time we went on vacation after that, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what if the car breaks down? Uh, Well, they're about to go on the road here, right? Our friends, the Israelites, are about to go on a road trip here. No cell phones, very much an unfamiliar setting. A lot of stuff is going to happen there. So even though they're departing from a setting that they're glad to be leaving this setting, their first few steps probably felt like really cool celebration. And then after that, they begin to collect questions as, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Where are we going? What happens if this happens? How do we have this need met, right? You have chapters in your life that feel just like that, right? And wherever they are for you, I mean, you could be a, a student who's just now getting ready to go off into college, or, you know, that's a, a new venture for you. Finally, right, you're done with high school and all those high school years and high school pressures, and yes, I'm done, and then you take these first couple of steps into college, and, and you go off into a whole new transition. All of a sudden, life's got some new stuff in it now. Life's got new people. Life's got new uncertainties about where you're going to live and how do you handle this and how do you pay for all this. And It wasn't exactly completely free of its challenges, was it? Right, some of you waited many years in life to get married and you found that person. And, and, and in some sense, there's this finally I'm exiting the, the Egypt of singleness and I'm, I'm venturing into marriage. But, you know, some of, some of you guys who got late, you know, married later in life, you came to realize transition wasn't exactly a worry-free event, wasn't it? You got married, but there was all these new issues that came with marriage. There was all these new questions and settling in and getting to know each other and having done life as a single person for a long time, and now you're, you're into this new thing with this other person that's kind of set in their ways, and, oh, my gosh, did I do the right thing? And, wow, this is a lot harder than I thought. Right? Transition has those kinds of elements in it. You know, having children can be that way. Uh, empty nests can be that way. You know, at, at some point, you know, you've longed to have children, and at some point later on in life, you, you long to get rid of them. It's, you know, and so you begin to like, ah, oh, you know, they're all going to leave at some point. And then they leave, and you enter into this whole new facet of, okay, wow, this transition here into this new life of, of no, no kid activity, no kid noise going on. How do we relate? What's, what's this chapter like? Right? All that stuff is in this period of transition, right? And, and, and for these guys here, and I think for us where I want to definitely point our attention, these guys are transitioning into a walk with God, right? They've been in Egypt, been in the familiar territory. Their life has been influenced and, and controlled in many ways by sin and there's been a distance between them and God, and, and so God now has stepped in and he's rescuing them. This, this is what salvation feels like, right? God is rescuing us out of Egypt, and now we're going to go take our first steps in following God. And, and I call this, you know, we've entered the highway of hope, right? When you leave Egypt, you have, you have entered the highway of hope. Now, you're, you're not in the promised land yet, but you have entered the highway of hope because you are following God, but there's some things to be learned about this highway of hope. 
that apparently along the highway of hope, it's not always easy. And there's some expectations that we need to install so that we have an accurate picture. God wrote these things down for us to understand. Following him, what's it going to be like to follow the God who gives us hope, but we follow him down a pathway that's going to have some interesting challenges in it as we read through these sections. But let me install this thought here. Put a little box in your first page there for us to talk for a moment about hope. You can have hope while at the same time having adversity, having setbacks, having struggles or detours, etc. You must have an understanding of hope that contains transcendent qualities. Right? There's going to be stuff going on in the moments of your life that you can still have hope in the midst of having stuff that feels like it's, it's conflict, it's battle, it's, it's fearful, it's uncertain. But in the midst of that, you can still have hope because hope biblically brings something into settings that's transcendent. It, it, it's from outside of that setting, right? The word transcendent, it's a, it's a good theological word, but here's what it means. It means exceeding the limits of experience, right? It's from outside of what your experience is limiting you to right now in your life. It's existing outside the material universe and so not limited by it, right? There are circumstances and events in your life that you lift your eyes up and you survey what's going on in your world and you collect all the natural data from what's happening in your life. And then you draw some conclusions about what can and what cannot happen next. Isn't that how you do in life like me, right? But to be a Christian is to have this, this odd thing in your life, this transcendent hope that doesn't allow my life to get defined by what I'm experiencing and what's only with me right here in the right now. I bring something else into that moment with me, and that's where my hope comes from, right? So things like this. Hope in an all-powerful, sovereign God. That's a transcendental thing. It reaches outside the natural and beyond the limits of your current experience, right? Isn't that what it does? You look at your life, it's limited. You have limited health got a diagnosis of something. And so there's so much time before this turns into that, turns into that, turns into that. All right, well, that's your circumstance right now. You have limited finances. You've got these needs that are at this level, finances that are at this level. And so you survey that and you say, hey, I'm limited here. The here and the now has limits to it. But when you begin to believe in an all-powerful God, when you begin to believe in a God who is sovereignly in control of every one of those details, you import something into that moment that that provides you with a sense of hope. Even though you say, hey, I pull out my wallet and I come up short. We don't make the payments at the end of the month. Are you with or without hope? Well, depends on what you're staring at, right? If you're staring at an all-powerful God who is sovereignly writing a storyline for you and all of his creation, well, I'm not sure that my wallet and the bills are the only things that tell me what's going to happen next. Or I'm not sure that the diagnosis tells me what's going to happen next. 
because I'm bringing something here from outside of that. Hope in a future land of promise is a transcendent thing. It's based in something outside the limits of current circumstances, right? So God is going to make a promise to these people that they will dwell in some land of milk and honey, this great land of promise where God says your future is under my control. It's a good place. It's a place where I bless and I provide for you. But their first steps out of Egypt, as we're going to read today, didn't feel like the promised land. It didn't feel like, wow, milk and honey. Everything is easy. Every, everything just works out. Happy storyline after happy storyline. But they are on the highway of hope. The moment they depart, they are following God. They are on God's highway of hope. So you and I need to have an awareness about hope and how it operates in our life, right? The very nature of hope is that it stands in the midst of conflict, challenges, difficulties, threats, dysfunction, etc., and it bases its feelings on something else. You get that? Because we can start feeling like if I'm going to have hope, then I need to not have conflicts. If I'm going to have hope, I need to minimize challenges. If I'm going to have hope, I cannot be living a life full of difficulties. If I'm going to have hope, I can't be threatened by something. If I'm going to have hope, there can be no dysfunction. Everybody's got to operate okay. Now listen, whether or not you came in here this morning and said, yeah, I've got a really bad definition of hope. Listen, there wouldn't be much counseling going on and there wouldn't be much complaining going on if my definition and my reality of having hope said I can have hope right now in the midst of conflict. Rather than acting like if I can just get the conflict to go away, then I can feel okay. I can have a sense of hope. If I could just get what's threatening me to go away. See, we're, we're looking at natural forces and saying, the natural forces have got to go away or change for me to have hope in my life. And that's not the way God does hope. Right? God's called these guys out. They have hope because they have God. No matter what the next chapters are going to read like, and no matter what events are about to come into their lives, and it's going to be some pretty full events. So let's, let's learn from their story here in Exodus chapter 13 how to have some expectations on the highway of hope. And I'm going to give you these expectations, and we'll just read little pieces along the way of their story. Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17, let me say this. Expect... Along this highway, expect that Yahweh, the personal God who has called you in the covenant with himself, expect that he understands your weaknesses. Expect that he does. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. That, that might actually translate more in formation than necessarily full of a bunch of swords and stuff. But here, here's, here's their issue, right? Here's Egypt to their back, right? I'm, headed, I'm, I'm facing east here on my map. Uh, the promised land is sort of a northeast direction from here. Mediterranean Sea, I just go right around the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, and I'm in Canaan pretty quickly in a, in a couple of weeks. 
But to get to the promised land from here, I've got to travel through the land of the Philistines. And apparently, according to this passage, that's going to require a different kind of faith from me. Because the Philistine, this is a well-traveled way. It's, it's a coastal road that goes, uh, it's, it's full of trade, but it's also full of guarded opposition. Lots of fortresses, lots of people guarding their territory. Primarily the Philistines are a great concern. So there's an option here. I can get to the promised land quick by going this way, or God can give us another direction. Although this direction is going to take me off into the wilderness but it will avoid the conflict with the Philistines. And for whatever reason, and it's kind of interesting here because, you know, I think God's done pretty well in managing the conflict with the Egyptians, right? It's not as though, not as though the Israelites had to put up a lot of fight here so far, but there's something that God knows about what his people are made of in this moment. That God says, if we go this way, it's going to take a certain kind of faith, and I don't think they've got it. I think if they leave Egyptian war and they face Philistine war right away, I don't think that's a good thing. So, so God actually takes into account the weakness of humanity as he leads us. Now, you and I might not feel like that really happens because quite often we feel like we're in over our heads, right? We feel like God's calling us to do something that's too hard for us to do. So does God really do that? Does God really pay attention that I've got some limitations in my life? Uh, Yes, he does. And and the Bible's pretty clear on on that, right? Weakness comes in a variety of packages in Scripture. You know, the Bible speaks about us as created beings in a condition of weakness. It says, God knows our frame that we are but dust, Right? God takes that into account. He knows what we're made of. You know, that's not a complimentary verse. This is not, God knows our frame, we are men of steel. You know, God knows our frame, we are cement, baby. We are like a block that will never move. No, he, he knows that we're dust. We're easily moved. The Bible speaks about the weaknesses of, in the fallen realm in which we live. You and I live in a realm that's fallen. This, this is no longer Eden. The fall has touched us. It has touched our lives. And, and so God is, is God aware of that? Because I know sometimes it feels like, God, this is too heavy. You put too much on me. I can't handle this. You must not be cluing in to the fact that there's some weakness going on here. No, the Bible says that he is. Romans 8 says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Well, why does God assign the Spirit this role of intercession? Well, because in our weakness, we don't always even know how to pray for our situation, and God recognizes that, and he provides strength into that weakness in our lives. Hebrews says this about Jesus. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Temptation presents a moment of weakness for us, doesn't it? Right? We have this genuine moment where we want to do this in agreement with God, but we're tempted to go this way. God knows something about that. 
He says, we have a high priest who can sympathize with that because he's strapped on human flesh and he lived aware of our weakness. That there are design weaknesses in us that God intentionally put there. Right? Like it or not, I know this is, this is not a popular thing in the world of gender confusion that we live in, but when the Bible calls husbands to live with your wife in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, Right? God doesn't apologize anywhere for the fact that he made men and women different than each other. Even though the world today is trying to do away with all those differences, the creator made them different. And then the creator turns around and says, hey, men, be mindful of that. There are categories in your wife's life where she is weaker by design. And you need to pay attention to that. So when you bump into our weakness, not only the Bible's clueless about that, so here's a moment where there's two roads set before them. This one requires a faith that God says, I don't think you have the faith for that. I think if you walk down that road, you're done. And God in his mercy and his care, he says, let's go this way instead. Now, be careful. You know, I've heard people use this phrase. Um, I think it's, it's a phrase that can be meaningful, can be used correctly. Uh, you know, I just, I just know this. You know, I'm in a tough circumstance. I just know God wouldn't give me anything more than I can handle. All right, how many of you guys have said that? You don't have to raise your hands. Um, all right, depending on what you mean by that, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume that you don't mean good things by it uh, because I think most people don't. They, they somehow have got this idea that, that they're, they're made of something and there's only so much weight they can handle and certainly God has figured that out. And, you know, if I'm a 112-pound handler, then God's not going to give me 113 pounds. He's just not going to do that. That's just, God wouldn't give me more than I can handle. Okay, when I, write, when I read the Bible, I find constantly God is giving people more than they can handle. All right, so I don't know if you're new to the Bible. That, that, that'll be, you know, interesting for you. But in this story, we're not going to read too much farther here. They're going to get more than they can handle in just a few verses. Right? They're going to venture out from Egypt, and they're going to find themselves locked between a mountain range, a sea, and a very aggressive army that is world-class, and the whole army has come out against them. I don't know how you're feeling about that, but I'm thinking more than I can handle, God. And, and the proof in the pudding that it's more than I can handle, it's going to take a supernatural God coming in and parting the sea in order to move them out of what was more than they could handle. Clearly, they are in over their heads. We have no solution for this. We can't fix this situation, God. Okay, if your life feels that way, you're not out of bounds. Now, if you think God will never give you more than you can handle, then you are out of bounds, aren't you? Because you're figuring, you're, putting, you're taking God to task right now because you're thinking God made a mistake. God gave me more than I can handle. You know, when the Apostle Paul, who's walked through some pretty severe things with God, cries uncle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he prays multiple times about this thorn in the flesh, and the apostle Paul is saying, Lord, whatever you do, get rid of this thing. Remove this thing. I don't think I can handle this thing. You remember God's response to the apostle Paul. One, God does not remove it, but God announces something to him. He says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. All right, so question. Is God giving him more than he can handle? Yes, he is. 
but not more than God's grace will come and bear up in him. And is he giving the, the Israelites more than they can handle? Well, yes, he is, but not more than what God's miraculous power can do in parting a sea. So when you and I assess things, we've got to import something into these moments that God is going to bring something to us that is sufficient for the hour in which we find ourselves. But you will definitely feel like on your highway of hope, you will definitely feel like, I can't do this. I'm not strong enough to do this. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough resources to do it. But God is aware of our weaknesses. Second, expect this along the way. Expect to be led by God. Expect this personal God is leading them, and he is leading us as well. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, Then the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Expect that as you venture out of this land that's become comfortable to you into a new place where there's a lack of definition, you don't know where the repair shop is, you don't know what you're going to do if your car breaks down. So here you are going off, and, and these transition moments, they scream feelings of being lost. Where are we? Are, are we there yet? Right? This is not familiar territory to us. What do we do if this happens? Questions, questions, questions. But along the way, God has provided for us a a spiritual compass, if you will. Now, for them, he chose for it to look a certain way. It was was a pillar of cloud by day. This, this, I'm not sure exactly what this looked like, but this cloud that was clearly distinct from just any average cloud in the sky that went before them. And then at night, it was a pillar of fire. So, you know, day and night, there was the leading of God taking place in their life. God had every intention that when he rescued them out of Egypt and put them on this highway of hope, he was going to lead them. They didn't have to have a map. They didn't have to know everything about where they were going. They didn't have to be there before. God had intended to lead them through this transition to wherever it was that he was taking them. Do you still believe that's true? So when you go to transition sometime in life and you get all these questions going on, you feel lost. Do you believe that God is leading you right now, wherever you are? That God really is leading you in what he wants you to do next? The God who's aware of your weaknesses, who knows at one point, don't let you go that way because that's not going to be good. Go this way. That God is really leading you. Now, I will say this, I think we need to learn how to follow this God and learn how to listen to this God, which is, might be a little bit of a challenge. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, they were guided by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night so that they had no need to be in any perplexity as to their road. We, too, have a guide. In providence, we are not left without a leader, and in spiritual things, we are not left without the Spirit of God. 
who shall lead us into all truth. Young traveler, you're not turned out alone into a wild wilderness to find a path. The good shepherd goes before you. Follow him as the sheep follow their shepherd. He never led his flock in the wrong direction yet. Do what he bids you and you are safe. But there's something about not knowing where you're going next that doesn't feel safe. Now, you are safe, but it doesn't feel safe, right? I mean, remember, fast forward. I'm not going to look at this today, but fast forward. They want to go back to Egypt. You guys remember, do remember that, right? I, I can't think of, you know, the thing that jumps out at me is why do you want to go back there? Because the unknown is driving us nuts. That's why we want to go back there. To me, that's the only thing they got going for them back in Egypt. We know what to expect, out here, we follow God day by day. We don't know what to expect next. We don't know where he's going to take us. We don't know what we're going to encounter. We don't know where our next meal is coming from. This is unfamiliar. It's, it's trusting God in a way that makes us uncomfortable. Well, you know, that's exactly what's happening in them here. But this God is leading. He is leading us. But you know, have, you, have you thought for a moment here, when, when they set out as a big herd and they discerned at some point that God is leading us with that pillar, that cloud, and that pillar of fire. That's how God's leading. Let's, let's follow that. Now, my question for us is, as you and I attempt to follow this God, what, what are you following? And I hope, hopefully you're not going to walk out in the parking lot and go, okay, where's the cloud? God said he wanted us to learn from the Bible today. Where's the cloud and the fire? Okay, well, that's what he was doing here. How is God leading you today? And do you pay attention to how he's leading you? Well, if I had to make a case for it today, I think the most profound case I, I would make for us is God leads us by his spirit and his word. Not, not clouds and fire today. His spirit and his word. Now, how good a job are you doing looking for the spirit and the word in order to be led by it? Right? These guys need to wake up in the morning and find out where's the cloud. The cloud's over there. Hey, we're going this way today. They need to go to bed at night or, or, or get ready for the evening to look for the fire. Get fires over here. We go this way right now. Okay, today God leads us by the Spirit and by the Word. So it raises the question, you know, yeah, I want to be led by God. And listen, you are on this highway through the desert. You are on this. This is where you and I are. Am I experiencing, looking to, making a place for, turning my attention to the Spirit and the Word in such a way that the God who wants to lead me gets access to leading me in life. Right? Do, do you know how many big decisions, we, we will engage people at different points in their life, they're making big decisions about life, making decisions about who they're going to marry, making decisions about whether to move, whether to take a certain job, whether to quit their job. Right? Pretty, pretty important decisions are being made in their life. And, and then sometimes people want to kind of add this phrase in. I just, I just know the Lord's leading me to do this. I just believe this is God. Well, we believe in a God who leads. But I know this. If I'm going to make a case for how God is leading you, the first place I'm going to go to is the Scriptures. And the Scripture is going to tell me God is leading you by his word and by the spirit. You need them both. This is, what, this is what alarms me a little bit. People go to make major decisions in their life, and they've already shared with you that they're never in God's word. Well, they don't have time to read God's word. 
All right. What are you basing this decision on that you're about to make? Well, just it's just how I feel, you know. All right, well, you know, do everybody around you a favor. Stop acting like you're a prophet who came down from a mountain. I just know God spoke to me about quitting my job. Um, when was the last time you read your Bible? Well, it's been a while. It's been a while. I'm amazed at how many people can, can hear God tell them that they're supposed to marry this person, but they can't hear God tell them to stop fornicating with them. Really? Well, where would you have discovered that? You know, you didn't even have to climb into a prayer closet and have some really deep encounter with God. You just pick your Bible up, and God would have spoken to you by his word, and you would have changed your relationship with that person, and you would be hearing some very different things right now in your life. So when you jettison the way in which God leads and the way in which God speaks, and then you kind of grow up in a little bit of a charismatic setting, you just kind of throw out this, well, God's told me. God told me. God told you to read his Bible. You doing that? If you can't hear God tell you that, don't be so sure that you're really hearing God lead you through the wilderness. The wilderness is a tough place to discern what to do next and where to go. Right? And this is what God says about his word. He says all scripture is inspired by God. Right? This book is unique. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. John 16 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Spirit and truth. The word of God and the spirit of God. Not just a subjective impression, although we believe in subjective impressions. But a subjective impression that's informed by the boundaries and the wisdom of God's word. 1 Corinthians 2 says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Listen, you know, I know we've said this 100,000 times. This book is about God. This is a book about God. It's not a magic eight ball. It's not a bunch of cool phrases and sayings that you just kind of throw out at some political speech. It's a book about God, and the Spirit searches the depths of God. Now, how interesting is this? I want to know what to do next in this next step of my personal storyline of life. Do I marry this person? Do I, do I quit my job and go back to school? I, I want to know that. The Bible wants you to know God. Do you just want to know this, or do you want to know God? Because the Spirit is going to lead you into the deep things of God. Well, I don't really that. I don't, you know, theology and all that stuff and what God's like and, you know, all these great miraculous things and whether God's transcendent or not. You know, I'm just not in that. I just want to know whether or not to quit my job and go back to school. The Spirit wants to lead you into the knowledge of God. Now, it may be that when you get an accurate knowledge of God, that decision will become much more clear to you as to why you'd ever do that or why you'd never do that but that's how God leads us. All right, number three, expect on this highway, expect that some of God's leadership might not make sense. I can tell you've already experienced that. <laughs> Chapter 14, verse one, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. 
And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. All right, strategically, this just does not look like a wise move. Here's our choices. Go this way and bump into the Philistines, or go this way and get backed up between an army that wants to kill us and the Red Sea. This doesn't look like somebody's following wise advice. Charles Spurgeon says, remember, next, that the Lord had appointed a way for these people. There was not only a guide, but a way. But where was that way? Mountains blocked them on either side. They could not turn back, for Pharaoh shut off that route. Where should they go? The reedy Red Sea rolled across their front. Listen, their way is across the bottom of that sea and up from its depths to the other shore. A strange path. It is not, it is no way at all, cries unbelief, right? There's no way to go here. Have you never read concerning God, your way is in the sea and your path in the great waters and your footsteps are not known? Tried believer, the Lord will make a way for you where no foot has ever been. That which, is, that which like a sea, threatens to drown you shall be a highway for your escape. Have faith that God can turn the evil into good, and that which threatens to annihilate you will be the means of your enlargement. Look well to your integrity, and the Lord will look to your prosperity. All right, listen, I, I know what it's like, and many of us can tell the chapter where, you know, we look to the east, nope, can't go that, look west, nope, can't go that, south, nope, north. There's nothing, I, there's no option for me. None of this is going to work. But, but you are on the highway of hope. In this moment, every surveying of the natural landscape says there's no way for you to take the next step. You can't go in these three directions, and if you go this way, you're going to get killed by this army. And yet, God is in this, isn't he? See, we, we yet have a hope. Don't know how God's going to do this, but we yet have a hope because we have a hope that's in God and not in what we can see and what we can evaluate and strategies that we can come up with. We have a hope that's in God. But expect that if that God is leading you, he's going to lead you into places that sometimes don't make sense. For you to be there. Number four, along this highway, expect that your personal storyline is not the only storyline along the way. God's doing more than what makes sense to you in and around your life. Look at verse four. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So there's a step here that's being taken to push God's people against the Red Sea and hem them in with mountains and have an army come attack them. That when, when you, you're on this journey, you're the person just following God on this journey, and you get into these circumstances, personally it looks like this is just a bad decision. I don't know what God's got up his sleeve. This is bad for us. Oh, but there's more than you in his decision. Pharaoh is in this decision. The Egyptians are in this decision. And you are in this decision. Now, this is just a a humble 
challenging moment for most of us because I'm very aware that I've got a storyline of my life. It involves certain cast of characters, certain pace of activity. And so I can begin to just stare at that and I just know this is the next thing I'm concerned about, God. God, how are you going to manage this right here for me? And yet God is managing so much more in his universe than just this. Right? And yet the most glaring example I won't take time to unpack this, but most glaring example, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Right? You, you follow st- the storyline of this individual whom God loves named Joseph, and his family becomes dysfunctional. His, his brothers become jealous. There, there's rejection in the household. There's some squabbling between parents and other siblings. There's some rivalry about inheritance. There's some stuff going on here that if I'm Joseph... I could just begin to pray about, God, why do my brothers hate me? Why do they treat me this way? Why do they talk about me the way that they do? Why don't they love me the way they love someone? God, where are you? God, why don't you show up in my life and show that you love me by fixing these broken relationships in my life? God, why? Why the neglect, the abuse, the the, the backbiting, the talking behind my back, me not fitting in? That's Joseph's story before his brothers fully turn on him and sell him into slavery. Now, you guys know the rest of Joseph's story, though, right? God is doing things beyond just the individual chapter of a young guy growing up in a family getting rejected by his family, which could be many of our stories, right? Many of us live in a storyline that, hey, I I get that one. I grew up in a family that was dysfunctional and was broken, and I ask a lot of why questions. Well, In this passage, we kind of get let in on God is at work all over the place. God is at work in Joseph's situation in the future that Joseph could never understand at this point. But God is at work there. And so you and I get a lesson here that their circumstances also had God at work outside of their circumstances. God is at work in your story, but God is at work outside of your story too. And you kind of got to let him have permission to do that. Number five, expect, expect that your enemy will return. And each of us have multiple enemies, but we tend to have one or two that are bigger problems for us than others. Verse five, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people And they say, what is this that we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out Defiantly, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. They're about to meet their old familiar enemy in a way that they've never met him before. We have no record of all the armies of Egypt have turned on Israel. Got no record of that. They were held in captivity in Israel. But this guy's coming out, guns blazing. All the chariots, he he has ramped up his war machine, and he is going after these guys. Something has gone off in his brain. 
in a different way. See, sometimes when your enemy comes back after you, he comes with more force than he did before. And you might want to be aware of that. Another help from Mr. Spurgeon here, he says, Do not I speak to some at this hour who during the last few months have, by the power of the Lord's gracious hand, escaped out of the bondage of sin? You've got clean away from your old master. With a high hand and an outstretched arm, God has brought you forth into liberty. You remember the sprinkling of the blood and the eating of the Paschal lamb, and you are now on your way to Canaan. But your former master and his friends have not forgotten you. You were once a valuable servant to Satan, and he will not willingly lose you. Some of you, whom God has saved by grace, could drink for Satan, lie for Satan, swear for him, lead others into evil ways, and you could do others, other things cheerfully. Thanks be unto God, certainly, certain of you have lately fled from your former bondage. But the point I am to speak of is this. The great tyrant has not forgotten you. And he designs in his heart your capture and re-enslavement. He and, our, he and his are continually looking for opportunities by which they may bring you back into the thraldom of evil. Fasten the manacles of habit upon your hands and fit the fetters of despair upon your feet. By the grace of God, I hope that the prince of evil and his helpers will be disappointed but they will leave no stone unturned to affect their purposes. Right, you have seen the day of God's mighty hand bring rescue, and what you never thought was going to happen, the Pharaoh, that controlling issue in your life, let you go. Its hold went like this on you one day, and you moved on. Oh, don't, don't, don't be foolish to think that that thing will not reach out again to revisit you. And maybe come with more force the next time than it did before. And what's interesting here is they're a little more vulnerable, actually, to this army than they were before. Now that, remember, they're out, they're out on the road now. They're out on the open road with a lot of questions and uncertainties about how do, how do our needs get met here. And we've never faced Pharaoh coming at us with all of his chariots and all of his army looking to kill us the way we've watched him kill other nations. This is a new moment for them. Beware of that. Every moment of threat in your life will not feel exactly the same. <clears throat> the enemy looks for moments of opportunity. He even looked for that against Jesus. Right? Remember what Jesus was, went into the wilderness to fast for 40 days? At the end of those 40 days, right at the end, at the moment of what he thought was the moment of weakness, he shows up with all kinds of temptations. When Jesus is successful against those temptations, it says that Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Looking for another opportunity against the Son of God to visit him in a moment of weakness. Listen, this was a moment of weakness for them. This was a setting in which you're vulnerable, you've got questions, you're out in the wilderness, you're... you're you're facing circumstances and situations you don't know what to do with. You're already rattled in your faith a bit. Right, listen. Be ready. I think, I think the King James calls this, they were entangled in the land. The wilderness had shut them in. 
This was a different setting for them. And at some point, you're going to find yourself in some kind of I'm entangled in the land moment. And you're going to feel shut in by, by, by your marriage. You're going to feel entangled and shut in by your parenting. You're going to feel entangled and shut in by your financial situation. You're in the wilderness. You've got too many questions that you can't answer. And you feel very, very uncertain. And now your enemy has come back. Listen, that guy is not playing fair. He's not making an appointment with you in your day of strength. He's ignoring you in your day of strength. He's waiting for this moment when you're vulnerable to his attack. Number six, expect to encounter fear. Right When this comes, look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And a part of me says, wait, didn't you guys just come out of Egypt? Didn't you just watch like the biggest fireworks show of all time, 10 plagues, God's 10 and 0, and you're going to face another opponent here, and you're terrified, really? Yeah, me too. <laughs> I hate, and I hate that about myself. I'm sure they, maybe they hate it about themselves too. I hate that I can watch God be God over and over and over and over and over again, and I have my moment where it comes against me in a certain way, and I am terrified. I am just scared to death by it. And i got to do everything in my power to fight the fear that wells up in my heart. Right? Listen, on this road, expect to encounter fear. If you're not paying attention to that, you're just not paying attention. I bet you can think, yeah, yeah, Tuesday, yeah, <laughs> uh, this morning. You know, Fear just shows up. And, and listen, it makes sense because to walk by faith, it's almost like, you know, if faith is the hinge that the door turns on, uh, you know, fear is right there with it. Right? There's something about fear and faith. They're, they're like two sides of the same coin in some ways. I, I walk by faith or the absence of that produces this fearful element that I'm in this creation and things are out of control and I don't know what's going to happen next and fear wells up inside of me. Listen, there's very few people that you'd ever talk to, honestly, that would tell you about a life that didn't have fear in it. Every one of us experiences fear. Now, notice this in the next few verses. When fear controls your heart, expect your mouth to say stupid things. <laughs> Look what they say, verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? <laughs> All right, I got it. That probably would have been me. All right, I am, sarcasm would have been the first thing out of my mouth. Somebody here is related to me, I know, in this story. <clears throat> what have you done to us? in bringing us out of Egypt. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. All right, there's, there's no hope here, is there? Right, do you hear in hope anywhere? We got no future. Whatever that land of milk and honey is, it's going to all be spoiled and go bad because we're not getting there. We're going to die in the wilderness. That's really what's going to happen to us. So they have transferred their belief into another category. And fear is in full bloom. And next thing you know, when fear gets strong enough, you will say something. And it will probably be pretty stupid. 
right? Or it will be angry, right? You're going to say some really angry things or some really sarcastic things, husbands and wives. How, how well do you know that? Or some accusing things. You did this. If you hadn't, well, you always, and you never, it's like something that you've done has delivered us to this address. Critical things are going to be said in this moment. Dramatic, overstated things, ladies, I mean, uh, are going to be said. (laughs) Hey, listen, I don't suffer from gender confusion. I know there's a difference between men and women, all right? (laughs) Um, I heard a phrase years and years ago. I don't remember who it was that said it. But it's a great phrase, and it's helpful for you relationally. As you walk with other people, when you bump into anger, anger, recognize it for what it is. And I think this is true almost all the time. Anger is usually fear in disguise. Right, so when you bump into your spouse or the people you're trafficking with or doing life with, and they are really, really angry about something, just back up from that, catch your breath, you know, absorb the blow, the sarcastic comment, the critical thing that just got says to you that was just full of the force of anger behind it and stop for a moment and say, what is this person afraid of right now? And almost every time you will discover that what's behind that anger is a boatload of fear causing them to become very aggressive or very animated or say harsh things or hypercritical or whatever it is. So that, that's very helpful because I do a whole lot better caring for people when I know they're battling with fear than I do battling with anger. Okay, when you start battling with anger and you don't come down from that, you just make me want to rise up against you. Right, so you want to fight? Let's fight. Right, so if I bump into your anger, something in me goes, all right, let's go. Let's go right now. <laughs> but if I bump into fear, there, there's, there's some sympathy that comes out of me for that person in that moment because I recognize I get afraid of things. And I get intimidated by them. And when I do, I start to press every button in a panic. And that's what this person's doing with their words right now. They're just just pressing all the buttons they can get a hold of. And they've found and fought with me and everybody and everybody they've ever known is doing that. I'm I'm just, what is that? It's, it's It's a great deal of fear in this moment. And listen, on this highway of hope, expect we are going to encounter fear. And yet it still is a highway of hope. Number eight, expect to have to walk by faith. I'm going to run out of time here. Let me just do these last two real quick. Expect to have to walk by faith, right? God's about to make a promise to them, and it's, it's just crazy. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. That's an interesting translation. You have only to be silent. If you go do some homework on it, it might say this. Just shut up. That's actually what it might say. I'm not guaranteeing it does, but just from what I've read, it may be God standing and saying, chill out, will you? Just Stand still and shut up while I go to work and rescue you from this. Well, listen, God's already made all kinds of promises. This is just another promise at this point, isn't it? This is just God giving us some idea of a promise that he's going to put these Egyptians behind us forever. Well, we just left Egypt, God. We thought that's what happened just now, and they came back. 
So their next step is what? Another step of faith. Have you figured this out? That every step with God is another step of faith. So you and I walk this highway. We put our hope in God and we walk this highway. It has all these elements to it and it requires you to walk by faith. If you're looking forward to a day in your Christian life when you don't have to exercise your faith, that day is never coming. You will never experience it. Even though I think I plead with God and I beg God for it, God, would you please arrange all the circumstances? I would like a covered, air-conditioned pathway through the wilderness where the enemies can't get in. It's impossible for them to get in. God, I don't have to exercise faith. This is 10-inch thick bulletproof glass in an air-conditioned environment. I'm going to Canaan. I'm completely safe. That's what I pray for stuff like that. You pray for stuff like that? And yet the reality is, God, it's not going to give me that. He wants me to walk by faith. And in that moment, right? Eric, go ahead and come back up here. In that, in that moment of walking by faith, here's, here's our question. Can you encounter all this stuff? Because there's, there's problems on this road, Right? As soon as they get done with these guys, I mean, you can fast forward into the story here. They don't even get to Sinai. They've got to fight the Amalekites. Wait, wait, wait. God spared them of fighting the Philistines, but then just, you know, a little bit later, they've got to go fight the Amalekites? Whoa. God, are you sure you're leading us? Yeah, I'm sure I'm leading you. You put our back against the Red Sea? Uh, yeah, I, I did that. Right? The, your road... Your highway is going to be filled with uncertainties and questions and conflicts and enemies who come after you with chariots and a vengeance. How are you going to have hope on that highway? Okay, let me tell you how you're never going to have hope on that highway. If your idea of hope comes from a chariot-less world, enemies that don't attack, enemies that leave you alone, wildernesses that are air-conditioned without any difficulty in them, Right, if that's your idea of what it takes for you to have hope, can I just tell you, you are never going to have hope in this world. But yet the Bible gives us the idea that we can have hope. And I, and I want God to help us get some hope this morning. So go ahead and stand up with me. And let's, let's see if we can invite the Lord to mess with us a little bit here. Listen, when, when Jesus Christ came and interacted with this fallen world, took sin upon himself, bore the consequences of our separation from God. It was one day to provide us with a heaven that wouldn't have any of the features on this road in it. No more enemies. No more wildernesses that feel like wildernesses. No more questions and uncertainties. He did purchase that for us. But before we get there, he, he brought something into our lives that gives you and me the ability to live in a fallen world with a hope that's intact. What Jesus did was he restored us to God. So that, that's no small thing. He restored us to the person who is the basis for our hope. See, I have hope not because my circumstances are in a particular shape, 
I have hope because I tr- there's something transcendent in my life. There's a God who's outside my circumstances who is with me and for me. And if I'm going to have hope in this world, it's not going to be because you managed to pray away all your difficulties or create a life that doesn't have any dysfunction and everybody's behaving well. It's going to be because you are looking on this highway to the God who is your hope, not to the circumstances to provide hope, right? So just listen carefully. Close your eyes. I think a lot of us are out on the open road right now. So Lord, help us as we just read this psalm to recognize, God, we in many places in this room this morning, we are out on the open road. We feel vulnerable. We've experienced conflicts, things that are broken, threats from enemies, threats from circumstances that we can't define. Being in a new setting where we don't even know what questions to ask yet, Lord, all these things make us fearful out on the open road. Listen to what the psalmist recognized in Psalm 42. He says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I would go with the throng to lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Lord, this morning we have a question on our road that sounds like this one. It is a question for our soul. Why are you so downcast? Oh, my soul. Hope in God right now. Not, not, not after the storm passes and not after the enemy goes away and not after the sea closes up on circumstances that were threatening. Right now. Hope in God right now. Not after you hear you don't have to confront the Philistines. Hope in God now. God, it's so tempting. Lord, we're here this morning tempted to give in to the fears that inhabit the pathway we're on right now. Lord, some right now are walking pathways full of fear, full of questions, full of doubt and uncertainty. Lord, physical diagnosis doesn't look good, not promising, not offering a future. Changes in relationships, close friends, spouses are turning into enemies. Doesn't look promising, God. Needs that we have no idea how they're going to get met. God, how do we live in this wilderness? God, this morning, 
we are on a highway of hope and that moment of hope never has to leave us because you are with us. God, you are the one who gives us hope. God, our soul finds its hope in you. God, at any moment, you could part a sea. You could put our feet walking in places that we never knew we'd ever walk. God, at any moment, you can overthrow an enemy that's in our lives and cause that enemy to never be seen again at any moment. Lord, this morning, would you restore hope in our hearts by lifting our eyes to you, the God of our hope. Lord, for young people that are here this morning, Lord, graduates going off into college with a lot of questions and uncertainties, God, would you lift their gaze from their circumstances to you, Lord, you go with them. It's not going to be an easy road. It's not going to be a road without conflict and difficulties and trials. But their soul finds hope in God. Lord, this morning, adjust our hope. Lord, we don't want to be a people traveling this highway without hope. God, you have given us a hope that is in you and in you alone. So, Lord, send us into these highways with a hope that overcomes fears the hope that's steadfast and immovable. Lord, as we sing and close our time together, Lord, would you teach us how to live on this highway? God, we're going to be on this highway. It is a highway of hope, Lord, because you are with us, and that will never change. Bless the Lord.